Boy, this is, uh, you can tell that it, you can tell that it's Thanksgiving week. Everybody's in town. Uh, and it's wonderful and it's delightful to see everybody who's here today. And thank you so much for coming and being here uh, with us today. And um, I, uh, I think you heard about my dilemma last week. My dilemma last week was that Lama Lodro Lama, who taught last weekend, could only be here last weekend, and I could only be in Tampa last weekend. So uh, for reasons of scheduling, uh, rather than try to have her rescheduled for next spring or me rescheduled for Tampa for next winter, we decided to be uh, in opposite places. But I heard that her teaching went very well and that uh, she was, uh, she was uh, both uh, personally and in, uh, in terms of uh, information uh, a blessing to all of you. So I'm really, really delighted. And now, uh, now, of course, what this means is that I'm going to need to learn how to do the white Tara practice because, um, because uh, she's got you all trained. And then if I make a mistake, you all going to find out. <laughs> All right. Uh, today, um, I'm going to um, do um, a single uh, teaching. And um, the folks who are uh, taking down the information, I will write down uh, the title and uh, description of this for the podcast description um, uh, as soon as I'm done here this morning. But the, the title of the talk is Interdependence and... Uh, gratitude. Uh, because uh, since Thanksgiving comes up this uh, week and since we have this opportunity, um, probably because of an act of Congress, a proclamation of the president, and uh, all of the greeting card companies uh, coming together to uh, create a holiday, um, uh, some people are calling this upcoming holiday um, uh, Native Peoples Day. Uh, as in honor of all of the Native people uh, who really uh, gave everything uh, for us to be here. Uh, and so I'm going to um, uh, talk about gratitude this week. And for this week's talk, I'm going to talk about that. But I'm also going to talk about the Buddhist concept of interdependence. Um, because I'm going to be speaking extemporaneously, I'm going to ask a favor, and that is um, if you could hold your questions until the question period at the end, this will be very helpful to me. Because um, ever since this gray hair has started coming out on my head, I have a harder time putting two thoughts together and having them stay together. Sometimes they fall apart. Uh, but um, I will pause from time to time and ask for questions. So if you can hang on, uh, that'd be awesome. Um, the reason I wanted to talk about interdependence today is because I, I heard a lovely talk about interdependence a week or so ago from uh, the, um, uh, the sensei at the um, Center for Pragmatic Buddhism. And he said, um, if you want to feel more gratitude, because everybody says gratitude's good for us, uh, it puts us in a different frame of mind, a non-competitive frame of mind, uh, a frame of mind uh, in which we are not competing with others or feeling superior or inferior to others. Um, it's, um, it, gratitude puts us in a, a soft and open place where we can connect to our lives and be 
uh, more, I guess you could say, more involved in our lives. So, um, but one of the best ways to develop that feeling of gratitude is to recognize the truth of interdependence. So I was extremely happy about this because I said, oh good, Thanksgiving will give me the opportunity to discuss interdependence, which is one of the main teachings of the Buddha. So I'm going to talk about that for about 10 or 15 minutes. Then we'll have a little bit of a discussion, and then I'll conclude with a small meditation. Uh, so um, interdependence. Uh, I like to talk about interdependence uh, in little ways. There's, uh, the Buddha said that things only arise in relation to other things. Everything arises interdependently. You can, you can talk about it from the point of view of logic, which is unfortunately not my strong suit. But in logic, in Buddhist logic, they say there is no long without short. There is no big without small. Uh, there is no hot without cold. So the idea in, in Buddhist philosophy is that everything arises in interdependence on other things. Nothing creates itself. Uh, for example, I could use the example of this wooden striker for the bell. Uh, this wooden striker did not arise of itself and by itself. It only came into being in relationship to a lot of other things. We could go all the way back to the tree that this wood came from, or even farther back. I'm going to pretend that this is made of oak. It's not, but it, we're going to pretend for the purposes of our discussion that it's made of oak. We could even go back to the acorn laying on the ground that didn't get eaten by a squirrel and didn't get buried and lost or broken and lost, but maintained its vitality and its potential. A seed with vitality and potential ended up in fertile ground with water and sunlight. This piece of wood has quite a history. An acorn fell off a tree, didn't get squashed or eaten, went into the ground, was warmed by the sun, moistened by the rain, grew a sprout that survived the onslaught of all the animals, and it grew to be a tree of size large enough that some person evaluating it for lumber purposes said, hey, I could make something out of that. And they came from somewhere themselves. The person who cut this lumber came from somewhere, had parents. Maybe they used to play Gordon Lightfoot records. Who knows? I mean. Mm. But, the, but the parents of the person who, made, who cut this tree and the parents of the people who put the wood on the lathe and, and turned the lathe and made this into a striker that could be used. I mean, wow, so many things have gone into this striker already. Not to mention all the squirrels that didn't eat that acorn. Big deal. 
It, because we are thankful to those squirrels for not eating the acorn because now we have the striker. Isn't that interesting? So the idea is that this striker for the bell did not invent itself, did not create itself. It didn't arise of itself. It only arose in relationship to other things. Now, the reason that this is such a, a, an important teaching of the Buddha is because we take a lot of this for granted. We take a lot of this for granted. We take a lot of our world for granted. We take, I mean, let's start with the highest level. I expect my Wi-Fi to work at home. I don't know about you. I expect it to work. Um, but if it doesn't, I get cross. I'll, I'll never forget being on an airplane uh, last week coming back from Tampa and the, the, the air uh, attendant, the, the flight attendant said, by the way, Wi-Fi is not working on this plane. You got to go old school, talk to each other. <laughs> anyway, anyhow, so I expect my Wi-Fi to work. But then I forgot that that relies on a signal coming from my cable provider, which in turn depends on a satellite somewhere, which in turn, all of it depends on whether the electricity is working at my house or not. Not having electricity is a big deal. As anybody who was in recent storms found out, um, a couple of years ago, there was that, that huge windstorm with the Spanish name, the Derecho, right? And it was 90 mile an hour straight line winds and, and all of the power poles went down like toothpicks in my neighborhood. And we were without power for 12 days at the height of summer. It was 100 degrees, not pleasant. But you get the idea that we become reliant upon all of these things and we take them for granted until we don't have them. And uh, so what the Buddha was trying to do by talking to us about this was to show us this web of connections. This web of connections. Because if you are connected to other people by this web of connections, there is a small chance that you might care about them. There's a small chance that you might care about these people and worry about whether they have a job or worry about whether the squirrels have acorns to eat or not. I mean, or whether the cable provider is giving um, bonuses for Thanksgiving. I don't know. But the idea is all of these things are connected together. And if we recognize the connection, we have a greater chance of caring about those other people. Kempel Carter Rinpoche calls this developing a sense of equanimity or equality, where we see that all of us are alike. We are all alike in that we all want our cable to work and our Wi-Fi to work. We all want to have electricity. We all want to have food. We all want to have a shelter, a roof over our heads. We all want to, uh, to be healthy and happy. We want all of those things. And that if we have those things, there's a, the, I think uh, somebody, I went by somebody's table. Somebody has the Great Path of Awakening on their, on their chair. Who has, who has a copy of it on them today? Okay. Uh, would you mind bringing, bringing, can you bring me your copy? Do you have it, do you have it handy? Yeah. There's, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, this, this is the aerobic portion of the program. 
I know. I, I looked at my copy this morning and said, oh, I need that. And then I went right, I went, kept right on going. Thank you very much. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's how it is, right? <sighs> I, that's, it's, the, it's the gray hair, I swear. It's the gray hair. Um, okay. Um, in, um, in the Buddhist teachings um, on love and compassion, it says that if we can understand that everyone is just like us and wants to be happy, we'll be more patient with them when they act badly. That doesn't mean we're going to let bad people get away with doing bad things. Not at all. It just means that we're going to try our best not to hate them for doing bad things. Because the hatred that we have of people who do bad things is actually harmful to us. It's not that harmful to the other people. So what we have to do is work on our own dislike and try to recognize that even the people we dislike are only trying in their own way to be free from the suffering that they experience. Oftentimes, people who act badly are actually full of fear. And it is their fear that causes them to act badly. And it is their pain that causes them to act badly. It isn't that they're trying to be happy by doing bad things. It's that they're trying to feel less bad about themselves or about their situation and so forth. And so the teaching on interdependence can lead to feelings of empathy and understanding and patience. And that's why they're so important. But they can also lead to a sense of gratitude. My goodness, I, I have electricity and Wi-Fi and food and shelter, and I'm grateful for that. I'm very grateful for that. And I have people in my lives who care about me and who are trying to help me in whatever way they can. I mean, we are all trying to help each other in whatever way we can. We're all flawed. We all have our own fears and our own pain. And so we sometimes stumble and make mistakes as we try to help each other. But we're trying. And I think that that's the key piece here, is that we can feel a sense of gratitude for all of the people who are trying their best to help make our lives better. And we can develop patience for those who are in pain and are acting badly. And perhaps we can find ways to intervene in the lives of those who are acting badly so that they will have the room and the time and the space to learn a different way to live. Um, I think often of, uh, of this time of year, we hear a lot about people who perpetrate scams on other people for the holidays. They'll call someone pretending to be uh, someone raising money for a good cause when they're only really just raising money for themselves. And we hear a lot about these kind of people. Well, we can pray and, uh, and hope and be patient, but we can also pray that someone intervenes in their life and gives them some time to think about a different way to live. It might be in jail, but they will be thinking about a better and different way to live. So rather than developing hatred for those who do wrong, we should do our best to strengthen the good that's within us 
the gratitude and appreciation that's within ourselves, as well as making sure that those who do wrong are helped in whatever way they need. So the reason I asked for the book was because um, the, uh, in the 19th century, or actually, let's go to the 11th century. Let's see. I'm, I have to look at the back of the book. Uh, I think these are 12th century. Uh, the, the slogans are in the, from the 12th century. These are mind training slogans from the Buddhist tradition. Mind training or lojong is a method of training the mind in love and training the mind in compassion. Gratitude is one of the practices that we can do that helps increase our love and increase our compassion. And the opposite is also true. If we increase our love and compassion, our gratitude also will increase. But sometimes we need a little extra help in training the mind in love and compassion. I run into people sometimes who act badly, and I get impatient with them. As my husband says, I wish they could be more like me. When we put ourselves in that position of saying, I wish they could be more like me, we're actually doing ourselves a disservice because we're putting ourselves in the place of judgment. Our, our life is the paragon. <laughs> My life is not the paragon. Anyway. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, this uh, 12th century text with the 19th century commentary called The Great Path of Awakening is one of my favorite books for training the mind in love and compassion. And some of the slogans in here have to do with gratitude. And, um, and this, this particular slogan is one of my favorites. The slogan, uh, it, this is um, for those of you who are interested. Um, uh, do you have a, a copy of the 2005? I see you have a copy. Of the two. Uh, could you look up uh, near page 35 um, where, uh, where it says, um, I'm sorry. It'll be somewhere around 35, and it'll say, learn the three difficult points. It's in sections, this is in uh, part uh, seven, the seventh point of mind training. Look for, learn the three difficult points, or you can look for guidelines of mind training. Okay, that's it. That's exactly where I'm... Okay, thank you. The very next one is take up the three primary resources, right? All right. Yeah, I love, I love the uh, new translation. Um, I have... Um, I, I, this is a parenthetical side conversation, but I've been teaching this book in one form or another for 15 years, and I got, I've got a big kick out of reading the, the revised translation of the slogans because the... Um, um, and I, I have to say this. I love you, Ken McLeod. You translated the book that changed my life, and I'm always grateful to you. But did you notice that you took the numbers out of point seven, and they all work? The first two slogans have the number one. The next three slogans have the number two, and the next four slogans have the number three, and he took them out. So he didn't see the pattern. Only, only strange mind people see the patterns in these things. And it helps you memorize things. That's part of the reason that they do things like this. When they, when they write the, these short and pithy sayings, they try to uh, fit in all of these little things that will help your memory. Anyway, this is um, take up the three primary uh, resources. In the, in, in the 1987 edition and in the 2005 edition, it is? Foster three key elements. Foster three key elements. 
I'm going to read what John Contrell wrote uh, about gratitude in the 19th century. He said, the primary resources for working at Dharma, and that means your spiritual life, the three primary resources for working at spiritual life are to have a good uh, teacher or a guru, the proper practice of Dharma with a workable mind, and suitable conditions for Dharma practice, food, clothing, and so on. If these three are all available to you, take joy in that and pray and make the aspiration that they be available to others too. If they are not all available, meditate on compassion for others and take upon yourself the deficiencies that all sentient beings experience in these three and these primary resources. Pray that you and all others may have them. I love this. I love this. Because it's saying that if you want to live a spiritual life, you need three things. You need a teacher who knows more or less what they're doing. Trungpa Rinpoche said, all teachers are a mixture of qualities and faults. Your job is to find a teacher that has relatively more qualities than they have faults. And then your job is to practice their qualities and not practice their faults. So you need a, a good teacher. That's the first one. Because otherwise, if you, if you don't have a good teacher, then you could kind of like wander, you know, as, as my friend, the Christian minister, likes to say, he says, sometimes if people follow me and I'm going the wrong way, I'll drive them into the ditch, you know, but you get the point. And I know, I've, I've had to get out of the ditch before. So um, at any rate, you have a good teacher, got to go the right direction. Second is a proper practice of Dharma with a workable mind. These two things actually go together. It's, it's one thing to sit and meditate and to watch your uh, breath coming and going and to, and to remember to come back. You have to remember to come back always. Bring your attention back to the breath. Bring your attention back to the breath again and again and again. And by doing this, you learn how to let go of the chatter, chatter, chatter of thoughts. So that's a practice, a proper practice of Dharma. But you also have to have what's called a workable mind. That means you don't just sit there and say, prove it to me. I don't think so. The idea is that we have to have a mind that's open to hearing the Dharma and open to trying it. Um, I, I've met people who say, uh, I can't meditate. I've tried. It doesn't work for me. And then I say, well, uh, this actually happened this past week. This actually happened. I, I do telephone consultations with Dharma students here in Ohio as well as other parts of the country. And I had my very first phone call with a woman this week who said, I can't meditate. I just can't. I've tried. There's just no way. And she says, and I, I really feel guilty and I feel awful because I can't meditate. I feel like I'm a failure. And I said, okay, let's fix that. <laughs> and so we started talking about her habits and how she worked with meditation and the expectations she had about meditation, whether those expectations were reasonable or unrealistic. And once we discovered a few little pieces of information, we found out that she could meditate because we did it right then on the phone. I said, well, let's just sit here for a minute on the phone and meditate. And then I walked her through it. And she's like, I said, how was that? She said, I meditated. And I said, see? So the idea was that 
She needed to know that she had a workable mind, but she didn't know it because she was trying so hard to meditate so well that she was preventing herself from being able to meditate. She's pushing, she's pressing too hard on her mind. And uh, the, the role of the teacher was to allow her to let go of that expectation and that presumption so that she had like one little opening where she might be able to practice. Now, next week may be different. You know, maybe she will fall back into the hole. But the idea is that we discussed it and we're going to talk about it again in a week or so to see if, that, if, if she can keep going on that path. So we need to, but if she had said to me, because what, essentially what she was saying to me is, I can't meditate. I just can't. So her mind was not workable because it was full of can't. And so we talked a little bit, softened up the can't. You know, kind of like using a scrub brush on a stain that won't come out. And just loosened up a little bit, and then it opened up. And she had a, a momentary, a, a moment where she could have a workable mind. I just love that. I love it when that happens. And anybody who's ever taught anybody anything, I mean, y'all taught people something. I mean, even if it's just how to, you know, boil an egg. You know, you've taught somebody something in your life. You can see that, like, ding moment where they actually understand you. And so that is a proper practice with a workable mind. The mind that knows that it can learn, the mind that knows it can change, the mind that knows that it can develop love and it can develop compassion and train in those things and can work on mindfulness. So that's the second thing you need. First thing you need is a teacher. Second thing is proper practice with a workable mind. But then the third thing is everything else. Food, clothing, and so on. You need all of your basics taken care of because if you don't have your basics taken care of, it's a little difficult to practice. Uh, Kempo Karthar Rinpoche tells people uh, if they don't have... Uh, if they don't have an income or don't have a way to uh, get an income, that they need to slowly and gradually meet with people who can help them get an income and help them so that they don't have to be afraid of having no money. So he, he kind of tries to encourage people to be smart and to be pragmatic. That's why I love him. He's 93 years old, but he's an incredibly pragmatic Tibetan who wants people to, to be able to take care of themselves and to be able to have a place to live so that they can practice there. So it's not just about the practice, it's about forming the circumstances for practice. And interestingly enough, if you don't have those circumstances, working toward getting them is practice. I know that sounds weird. It's like, I've heard people say, oh, until I get my new apartment or until I get this or until I get that, uh, I'm not going to practice very much. And it's like, no, practice now. Get some practice done now. Do a little bit of practice now, and then that will help you get those things. And then work toward getting your apartment all set up. Work toward getting a job. Work toward getting the things that you need. Work toward those things and, that, and use that as your motivator. When I get these things together, I will practice more. And the idea, and then you're setting yourself up to do something good once you have it. So, he says, uh, if these three are all available to you, take joy in that and pray that they are available to others too. I meet a lot of people, and they have these three things. And 
what he's saying is take joy in that. He's not just saying take them for granted. He's saying they could be gone in an instant. And so take advantage of them while you have them. Don't take them for granted, use them now. Which I just think is so lovely because gratitude implies this happiness that you have these things and this wish that others have them too. It's not just, I've got mine, too bad about you. you know, the idea is that where you actually think, may others have the same things I have. And then he says, if they're not available, uh, if they are not available, meditate on compassion for yourself and for others, and take on yourself the deficiencies that all sentient beings experience in these primary resources. Pray that you and others may have them. The idea is, uh, don't feel bad if you don't have these things. Uh, uh, work toward getting them, and make the aspiration that you and all beings have them also. Mm. In that way, you are doing practice. You're actually doing Dharma practice as you try to get those things. And you're doing Dharma practice as you make the aspiration that others have them. And so um, this is why I wanted to talk about interdependence today. Because interdependence, the fact that the squirrel not eating an acorn gave us something today, gave us this striker for our meditation gong, is, I guess you could say, a symbol of all of the things we're grateful for. And if we can use that squirrel's merit in not eating the acorn that made the striker, that facilitates our meditation, and we dedicate our meditation to all the squirrels and all of the world and all of the woodcutters and all of the people who work lathes and all of the people who bring our food to us, our clothing to us, our shelter to us. If we think about all of those people, we have a lot of people to invite over for Thanksgiving. We have a lot of people to include in our at least our mental feast, if not our actual feast. And so um, I wanted to say a few things about that today. Um, so I'll stop talking now and see if people have uh, some questions or discussion about gratitude, uh, interdependence, uh, the three primary resources, uh, squirrels, what, whatever you have that you'd like to discuss. We'll have a, a discussion for a few minutes and then we'll meditate on gratitude. Does anybody have anything they'd like to discuss? Questions, thoughts? Uh-oh, they're sleeping. Yeah? Okay. Well, there being no questions then, uh, we'll go ahead and do a meditation. Okay. Uh, we'll start uh, by sitting in whatever meditation posture is most comfortable for you. If, uh, if you're sitting in a chair, uh, place your feet flat on the floor, uh, about hip width apart, if you can't, if your feet don't touch the floor, uh, grab a cushion and put it under your feet and that'll allow your feet to touch the floor. 
If you're sitting on the floor, uh, sit in any one of the uh, cross-legged positions that gives you some stability. You can place your hands palm downward on the legs. This is called the uh, posture of Marpa, the translator. It's how he's depicted in iconography. Uh, alternately, if you like the, uh, the, the hand position called the lion's pause, that's the uh, thumb at the base of the ring finger, hands closed in a light fist, palm downward on the legs. Or you can use the traditional hands cupped in the lap uh, with the left on the bottom and the right on top. Um, I like the Marpa because my arms are longer. I like the Marpa position. Your back is straight. You can uh, think that your breastbone is moving up. That will give you straight shoulders without a hunch. The chin can be tucked in slightly. That straightens the neck vertebrae. The eyes can be uh, either closed lightly or lightly open, allowing your gaze to rest on a on the floor or on what is in front of you a few feet ahead. Do your best to allow your gaze to be diffuse. In other words, you're not trying to focus on a point. Just let your gaze rest on what you're seeing. The tip of the tongue can be touched to the upper palate behind the front teeth. And then, uh, then the jaw can be relaxed. So that's the legs, your seat, your back, your shoulders, hands and arms, the chin, the gaze, and the tip of the tongue. You begin with uh, mental aspiration. You aspire to practice meditation for the benefit of yourself and all beings. The meditation begins with one deep breath, breathing deeply as though you were as though the air were going below your navel. Breathing out. and then allow the breath to come and go naturally. There's no need to try to control the breath, making it deep or long or short. Just let the breath come and go naturally. You can place your attention on the breath as it goes out and comes in. Or you can just place your attention at the nostrils where the breath comes and goes.
Sometimes thoughts will arise, and you can use the technique of touch and let go. You turn your attention to the thought briefly, in effect, touching it with your attention. You can label it, thinking, let go of it, and then return your attention to the breath for a fresh start. Next, you can imagine that in front of you, in space, you see a group of people, animals, all kinds of beings. And as you breathe out, think that you're sending goodness to them. Extend your goodness to all of those who are familiar to you. And then mentally extend your goodness to all of those who are unfamiliar to you. And finally, extend your goodness and wish for well-being to all beings. As you breathe out and send this goodness to beings, think that it touches them and makes them happy. Those who do not have the things they need, make the aspiration that they have everything they need. If they're lonely, extend to them love and compassion and make the aspiration that they have companionship. If they're hungry, imagine that you give them food. If they need a home, imagine that you give them a place to stay.
see that they are just like you. Feel grateful for what you have and wish that all others have what you have. Then release the meditation and let your mind rest for just a moment, not thinking of anything in particular. was a short meditation on the interconnectedness of people and a little bit about gratitude. Uh, my, my hope is that it uh, will be helpful to you this week as you uh, approach uh, what for some people is an easy time and a, a fun time and for others uh, not so easy and, and not so enjoyable. <laughs> Uh, does anybody have uh, any remaining questions or curiosities or thoughts, comments? Okay, then uh, we'll uh, close here for today and uh, we'll make the aspiration that all beings everywhere are free from suffering and its causes, and we dedicate the goodness of this session to all beings, that they may be free of suffering and the causes of suffering, and that they may have happiness and the causes of happiness. I'll recite a short prayer. Just sit quietly for a moment and mentally dedicate the goodness. Thank you.